The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at StoneOakBible.com. Well, now that you're guaranteed to be awake, um, <laughs> guarantee. Um, I hope you are doing well this morning, and um, listen, I'm really glad to be back this weekend. Um, last weekend, I got the great privilege of, of serving and volunteering in our kids, um, and uh, I don't often get to do that. I'm busy doing uh, other things, but um, last week, MD did a phenomenal job preaching, and I got to go back, and I'm telling you, I loved that. We have some of the most incredible little ones in our church. Um, I got the joy of being in the third through fifth graders class, so shout out to them. It was great. There was something so simple and beautiful about just talking about the gospel with open ears. That's what it was. Um, if any of you are wondering, like, if you should volunteer, now that I've been back, yes, you absolutely should. It was a joy, and I'm not great doing like, I'm, no one would look at me and say, he should be a children's minister. Like, I, can, I know that about me. I know that. Even I, as I stepped back there, it was beautiful, and I'm grateful. But I, I, am, I did miss being here. Uh, MD, last week, one of our elders did a phenomenal job, just a beautiful job in Psalm 22. I told him that people are going to start asking for him to preach more. The reason why is because somehow he handled, I didn't get how many verses, just a lot of verses in under 30 minutes. Like, what? I, 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 I have never been able to do that. So um, it was wonderful. I listened back on it. It was so, such a faithful handling of the word. And um, we get to look at a psalm this morning that goes beautifully side by side. So we looked at Psalm 22. This morning, we are going to be in Psalm 24, and um, this is a beautiful psalm. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you, would you grab them, open with me, scroll with me to Psalm 24. Uh, if you're here, you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you, and if you're here and you don't own a Bible and you want a paper version, um, there should be one around you, and it would be our our great privilege and joy to give it to you. You don't need to tell us about it. Just grab one. Grab the one that's in the best condition around you. Take that one home with you. We'd love to give it, give it to you. Um, here at Stone Oak, uh, we have a rhythm. Every summer, every summer here at Stone Oak, we pause from what book we are in, and we spend several weeks in the Psalms. I love this rhythm, and we're going to continue this rhythm here uh, this, this morning together in Psalm 24. These Psalms are so diverse Every summer, we realize that these, these psalms, they deal, with, they deal with pain. They deal with trials and suffering. We see psalms that deal with fear and anxiety. We see psalms of gratitude, thanks, praise. We see every kind of, of psalm. Our psalm today is one that I kind of characterize as proclamation and praise. This is a psalm of worship and praise this morning that we're going to look at here in Psalm 24. Now, uh, rather than just reading it like I typically do right up front, I thought that it would be, um, it'd be helpful to start with the historical context and then to read it. 
I'm not going to spend long here, but as we read it, I think it helps us kind of dive in a little bit. Most biblical scholars here, as we look at Psalm 24, believe that this psalm came out of the events of 2 Samuel 6. You can turn with me there if you want, no need to if you don't. Uh, But in 2 Samuel 6, just to give you a real quick context of what was happening before I read the the words of of this psalm. Um, this is a psalm of David, and in 2 Samuel 6, you're coming out of some extremely interesting circumstances. Um, what we have here is David was just anointed king over Israel. This is a huge deal. A lot went on into that, but this morning, I'm going to leave it at that. This is the morning for that. Um, but he's just anointed king, and God had already gone before him. We're coming right off a text where, where David and, and the, the people of Israel... God gives the Philistines over to them. And so David's anointed as king, defeats the Philistines. It's a wonderful beginning. And then we get to 2 Samuel 6, which is so interesting. What we see here is David commissions that the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, to be brought back or to be brought to the city of David, Jerusalem. And um, what we read is that it was a celebration. It's a party time. It really was. Party time. Tambourines. Uh, guitars. I don't know their instrument. Liars. We don't know what that sounds like. But it was all going on. Like this was a celebration here and it should be. And then through all the music and dancing, dancing it happened. There was an accident. And uh, what we read is that in, in uh, verse 6, one of the oxen carrying the ark stumbles. And a man named... Uzzah reached out and um, touched the holy ark of God, which was not to be done. And what we read in this text is immediately Uzzah dead. Told you this was an interesting set of events. Here, dead. The text actually says that the anger of God was kindled against Uzzah for this accident. He drops dead. Crazy turn of events. And then we see in verse 8, we see David's response I'm going to read this before we get to David's psalm, okay? Here's David's response, verse 8. David was angry. Have you ever been angry at the Lord? David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And the the place, it all happened. He called Perez Uzzah to this day. Um, That literally means the breaking out against Uzzah. So he just named it for what happened. And he was angry. And then verse 9, it says he was afraid. David was afraid of the Lord that day. Afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? In other words, I saw what happened to that man. Do I really want it near me? He was afraid. He was angry. He was afraid. He was fearful to have the ark near him. Not only was he afraid and fearful, but we read in verse 10 that he was, in fact, unwilling He said, nah, nah, we're good. The ark doesn't have to come all the way here. It's killing people. Keep it out. So verse 10, he said, David is not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Instead, he finds a house. He leaves it there. I'm summarizing it. Um, But you can read it that in verse 11, the ark of the Lord actually remains in this guy's house for three months because David was angry And fearful. And in those three months, the text says the Lord blessed 
Odom Edom, which is the guy in his household, all of his household. So we have this crazy moment here of, of excitement and celebration and dancing and worship, and it turns into this crazy incident of death and fear. We have, now we see David has this unwillingness to even have the ark of God come to his city. Plans change. Now we're going to fast forward just a bit. Verse 12, and it was told to David that uh, that household you left the ark, it's actually, things are going well with them. Um, and, and, um, and in David, David in, in, chapter, in verse 12 says, so David went and, and brought up the ark from the house of Obed to the city of David. And again, you see, with rejoicing, the party's back on. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, they, they stopped, they sacrificed an ox, a fattened animal, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And so David and all of the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with a shout of horn. The celebration was back on. The ark was now coming back to the city of David, to Jerusalem. I wanted to start here this morning because, as I said, it is believed that this is the moment where David wrote this psalm. More than that, that this is the moment that not only did David write this psalm, but it is believed that this is the psalm that they were kind of worshiping around the, uh, the ark as they were bringing. This was the celebration psalm is, is what most scholars uh, see. In other words, this is kind of the people's liturgy for their worship service, what we're about to read. And I wanted to start here because it makes what I'm about to read, this psalm, Psalm 24, all the more powerful. So let's put ourselves in this moment in the shoes of these, pe these people, and let's read Psalm 24, then we'll pray, we'll get to work. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, the king of glory, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you in um, this morning. We worship you for who you are. We come around your word to hear from you. And I pray that this morning you would open our hearts, open our ears to what you would have for us through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to break up this psalm in three parts, so you know where I'm headed. Part number one is going to be verses one and two. Part number two will be three through six. 
And part number three will be seven through 10. So in part number one, what we're gonna look, I'm just giving you all the goodies up front so you know where I'm headed. Part number one, what we're gonna look at is our God, the sovereign creator. Part number two, we're gonna look at our God being the holy one. And part number three, we're gonna be looking at our God, the king. Let's start with the first one. Uh, part number one. And uh, I just wanna read verse one again because it's amazing. It says, the, Lord, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. This statement, verse 1, has two lines and they are repetitive. They, they say the same thing. They restate the same thing. This is total sovereignty here. The earth, but it's not just the earth. It's everything on the earth. The world, but it's not just the world. It's everything dwelling therein. It's every single person and creature on it. This is total and complete sovereignty. Um, I've used this quote before. But I think it's good enough to use it a couple more times before I get in trouble. Um, this is from a theologian pastor from a long time ago uh, named Abraham Kuyper. And uh, he says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of the human experience over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That's good. Mine. All of this, the earth and everything in it. The world and everything on it. What Psalm 24, 1 says is that that cry mine sovereignly over it all. If you think back to Genesis 1 and 2, and we hear and we read the story of God creating all things out of nothing, we read um, that, that he's forming all things into being by his word, the earth, universe, stars, sun, moon, animals, fish, birds, humans, could go on, everything. Creating everything out of nothing. What this psalm says is take all of that, take the whole of what was created and Genesis 1 and 2, put it all on the table in front of you and God says, mine. It's all mine. All mine. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. And this is why in verse 2, David continues to link us back to Genesis and God's creative power. He says, Verse 2, for he has founded it upon the seas, established it upon the rivers. If you think about it, just as an author has the, the power over her novel, just as the, the, the builder over the building, the artist over the canvas, the musician over the instrument, here we see the creator has the sovereign power over his creation, and we are reminded God is the sovereign creator, right. mine mine. We need to start here for one huge reason before we go further. Um, I think we need to start here because this kind of pushes against a temptation that we might have um, to, let me say this in the nicest way I know how, uh, the temptation to think that this all revolves around you. This temptation this reminds us that the world does not revolve around us, doesn't revolve around you. In other words, it reminds us to have a Christian worldview as we come to this text. And we start here. I'm going to use some big words, just ignore them, but they mean something important. Um, the Christian worldview is not anthropocentric. Have you heard this word? You can probably guess what it means. Centric, centered on, anthro, man. The Christian worldview is not centered around you. 
The earth does not revolve around you, and you are not at the top of the pile with everything. And worse yet, it's not only that it's not that, it's also not self-centric. You can guess what that means. Not only is it the belief that the, the world revolves around us as humans, but, the, but it's very easy to slip into the temptation to think the world, the world not only revolves around humans, but me. Self-centric. And the Christian worldview says no. And we've got to be careful because it's easy for us to slip into these two worldviews in the name of Jesus. Don't do that. In fact, the prosperity gospel teaches this. Get yours, get happy, get healthy, get blessed. Because you deserve it. You're the center. You see it in other ways of, uh, you know, what does Jesus, what can Jesus do for me? What can this church do for me? That Christian consumerism, what does that do? Puts us right there in that center. And you're not made to bear that weight. And the Christian worldview says no. Um, By the way, the Christian worldview does remind us that, that, that human life is of great value. The sanctity of all human life. We are created in the image of God. We believe that. But please don't let that lead you to think that you are the center that you are the God, (laughs) because we are not. This is not all about, the most loving thing I can do pastorally, by the way, is to tell you, brother, sister, it's not about you. So if you're upset with me, I can get over that, because I'm trying to love you well. This is not about you. This life is not about you. But it's not only that. There's this new word that crept in. So you have this anthropocentric, self-centric. There's this new word that popped up called ecocentric. I bet you can guess what that is. There's this new push now that it's not just humans that should sit at the top. It's not just me, but it's the the environment. It's all of us together. We link arms, and we are are the center. The the creation is the center is the best way that I I can put this. The people, the plants, the animals, the trees, the hills, this is what really matters, and this is what all of creation centers on. I gotta tell you, that is also not a Christian worldview. That is not a Christian worldview. Now, yes, creation matters. Yes, you are called to steward it and to exercise godly, faithful dominion over it. Yes, and yes, and yes. Um, But all of this does not revolve around creation. Um, Church, creation points us up. It points us up, and the Christian worldview is not anthropocentric, self-centric, ecocentric. What the Christian worldview is, is something that we call theocentric. You might be able to guess what that is. Theo, theo, meaning God-centered, centered on God, centered on God, meaning that we believe that all of this, all of this revolves around him and not me, him and not us, him and not creation. That he is the center. So whereas anthropocentric says, you're God, and and, uh, ecocentric says, everything is God, theocentric says, no, there is a God, and he is separate and distinct and holy above his creation. That is the Christian worldview. That is the Christian worldview. We say there is a God. All of this matters. We matter. Creation matters. We have value. But all of this, our whole life does not revolve around us. We were not created to bear that weight of the world revolving around us. It revolves around him, that he is our sovereign creator, 
you cannot wear the weight of being the center. Many idols have been constructed to try to bear that weight. Many people have tried to wear that weight, but you weren't created to wear that weight. And so what King David does here in this scene is draw the people, draw their focus back up. Don't you dare look at me, David says as the king. Look up. Look up to the one who created all of this, to the one that all of this is centered on. And um, today, church, we do the same thing. We look up. The earth and everything in it is his. The world and everything on it is his. He founded it. He established it. So we look up. And it's not only that. We want to start there. But part two now, it's not only he's the sovereign creator. But in part two, we also find that he, our God, is holy. Um, Holy. Holy means that he is pure, perfect, set apart, and distinct. So when we say that our God is holy... What we are saying, what we are reminding ourselves and proclaiming is that our God is altogether separate, set apart, perfect, and beyond us. Holy, holy, holy. You see this refrain all through, all through Scripture because our God is holy. And by the way, that is the single greatest problem that we face as human beings. It is. He is perfectly holy, and you are a sinner, and you are not perfect. How is it that we can come together? How is it that we can interact with him, approach him, know him, speak with him? In fact, let's revisit our scene in 2 Samuel 6. You know what happens when an unholy man engages with the holy God? Let Uzzah be the warning. It does not go well. There is, this, there is this fear and reverence that we see here so much that David's like, don't even bring that ark in my city. Like, keep it, keep the distance, social distance. Let's keep it, keep it away from me, right? There is this fear and this reverence. And, and in light of what we read in, or what, what I said in 2 Samuel 6, in light of that story, can we just take in the question that David asked in verse 3? When he says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He's coming off of a, of a scene when someone just died. And he asks this question, who is it that can stand before the Lord? He is so holy. Who is it who can approach our holy God, stand before him, and live, stand with him? Who is it that can not only stand with him, but even touch the ark? Who is that? Who is that man? And David says, Here's who the man is. Verse 4, he is who has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands meaning outward actions, purity of what we do. And heart meaning inward motivations. So what David says is, it's purity in what we do and the heart for why we do it. It's inside out purity. That's who can stand before the Lord. The one who is pure inside and out. He who has clean hands and a pure heart doesn't lift up his soul to what is false. That's a false idol. Doesn't swear deceitfully. That's telling lies. Dishonest. This man, this woman, the one like that, can approach God. So my question for you is, where is that guy? Anyone here want to just, I got it, right? (laughs) Who is this man? Who is this woman? Where is this man? 
Where is this woman? Someone pure in everything, all actions, all motives, pure in their worship, pure in their tongue. Where is this man? I'm I'm glad that you asked because it's exactly what David is going to ask later. Who is this man? I want to introduce you to someone. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I want you to follow with me here. Who stepped into human history to live the life that you and I could not live. Who, who came and, and who, would, um, who would not... We could not be holy, but he came and was holy. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 21 and 22... For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you may follow in his footsteps. And then in the next verse, he says, he, that is Jesus, committed no sin. That's purity, hands and heart. He, that is Jesus, there was no deceit found in his mouth. I asked, who is this man that... David describes in 24, church, this man is Jesus who committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. This is Jesus. In other words, we could not be holy, so our God came down to be holy on our account. This is the gospel we stand on. And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He, Jesus Christ, had no sin and he took our sin. He, Jesus, who was perfect and holy and righteous, he gave us his righteousness. So that now in Christ, through Christ, we are declared righteous and holy. So that now in Christ, through Christ, we can ascend that hill. We can stand in his holy place. And I want to push that one step deeper. Because scripture says not only can you ascend that that hill and stand in that holy place, but in Christ, you are made his holy place. You are made his holy temple. This is the gospel that we preach, the gospel that we believe. Who can ascend the hill? Who can stand in his holy place? The answer is Jesus Christ, the perfect and sinless and holy one. And now through Christ, we can approach the throne of our God. And I want to share one more scripture because I can't help myself. In Hebrews 4, it says we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. This is in verse 14. Jesus, the Son of God, it says, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Does that sound familiar? And then from that, from his perfection and holiness, listen to this in contrast to 2 Samuel 6. Let us then, verse 16 says, draw near to the, or draw with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Can you compare that for a second? In 2 Samuel 6, we have this holiness of God and and fear and dread and, and social distancing, But now through Jesus, Hebrews says, we not only aren't afraid, but we come near now in confidence. That church is the gospel. You have been made holy by Jesus, and you come near to the throne in confidence. And now we stand in the truth of Psalm 24, verse 5, that says, he will receive blessing from the Lord 
and righteousness from the God of his salvation. That is us. This is what we have received now through Jesus Christ. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Church, our God is the sovereign creator, and we are his creation. Our God is holy, and we are declared and made holy through Jesus Christ. And this leads us to part three, where David has been asking the same question that we've been asking when he says, now who is this? Who is this? He says, verse seven, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He says it again, lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And again he asks, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Our sovereign, our God is, is not only the sovereign creator, not only the holy one, the perfectly holy one, but we read here that our God is the king. And listen, we could use a lot of names to describe our God. A lot of names. From, from savior to friend to father to counselor to redeemer to healer. All good. I could go on and on. All good. All true. All having their place. But there is something that we shouldn't lose sight of when we think about our God. There's something that we shouldn't miss And that is that our God, Jesus, is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the King of glory, as this text says. And for, um, I want us to think about something for a moment. When we think about salvation, what do you think about? You don't need to yell it here, but just process it. What do you think about when you think of salvation? Most of us, we think of eternal salvation. We think of our life in Christ for eternity. We think of heaven. And that's That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, We think of the spiritual. We think of justification. We think of all these things. Again, all true. All true. Uh, But along with that, I would also argue that that is not entirely all that David had in mind when he penned the words of this psalm. See, David and the people, they were surrounded by real enemies that had real swords who were sharp. and Real chariots that were fast. Surrounded by nasty and bloody battles and real enemies who really did want them dead and who were threatening them and wanted Israel to fall. And here David, King David, is appealing to a greater king than himself, appealing to salvation, not only then, but physical salvation of what he is facing here in this moment. And in this, he asks the question, who is this king of glory? David is not claiming that he is. David says, it's the Lord. The one who just gave me the victory over those Philistines. It is the Lord who is what? Strong and mighty. The Lord who is mighty in battle. David is lifting up his eyes and lifting up the people's eyes and to the all-powerful king. And be reminded, what is a king? A king is someone who rules justly, protects the people, is powerful. The one in charge. That's the king. A figure of power. And here David, who is the anointed king, by the way, says, look up to the better king. All of the glory, all of the splendor of King David does not compare to the glory of the king of glory, King Jesus. 
He points up. And by the way, I think this pushes against one more temptation that I want to push against. Our temptation is not only to think that the world revolves around us, but along with that, we might have this temptation to think that we're actually in charge of that world that's revolving around us. We're actually in control of that world that spins around us. We know that's not true, but we fool ourselves anyway. We like to think that as this universe spins around us, that we get to call the shots of that. that. We're in charge of that as it spins. And here, King David, the appointed king, is saying, no, who is the king of glory? It's not me. He is the Lord. This universe doesn't revolve around me. He is the king of glory. I am not all powerful. He is the king of glory. He points us up, and there is this humbling of ourselves before our God. Philippians 2 uh, Paul is encouraging us to put on the mind of Christ who Christ emptied himself. Though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man and he humbled himself to the point of becoming obedient to death on a cross, he says. But if you, if you think at the, of, of verses 9, 10, and 11 that just followed that, don't miss this. Right out of that, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Paul says, and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Church, that is king of glory language. That is us submitting to the king of glory. And then Paul says, every tongue confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, that is glory language. That is knowing our place before our king. Submitting our wills to his. Submitting our plans to his. Submitting our everything to him. Who is this king of glory? It is Jesus Christ our Lord. Our God is the sovereign creator. Part one. Our God is holy. Part two. And our God is king, part three. And listen, I want to conclude with, with taking a short journey. And I do have the time. Uh, short journey to one other text. Um, if you would, you don't have to, but if you would, if you wanted, scroll with me a little bit to your right to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 6. I want to bring all of this together with this passage that I think connects so beautifully to Psalm 24. In fact, I think what we're about to read in Isaiah is is Psalm 24 being lived out in front of our eyes. Isaiah 6. Here in Isaiah, we get this incredible scene. We get dropped in where Isaiah, who's a prophet of God, called by God, um, he sees this vision from God at this, the throne room in the presence of God. And here in our text in Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees it. And what do you know that he would hear around that throne room? Verses, verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. That sounds really familiar. To our psalm. But Isaiah here peeks, gets his vision, and sees that 
holy God. You are holy, perfect, set apart, other than your creation. The whole earth is filled with your glory because you are the king of glory, sovereign, holy, creator, king. You hear all this worship going on around this throne, around his throne. And do you know what Isaiah's response is? He sees it. And in verse 5, he says, woe is me. We don't use the term woe is me very much. I think you know what he's getting at, though. Woe is me. He says, who am I? He says, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Yeah, my eyes have seen the king. Is that king language again? The Lord of hosts, woe is me, for I am unclean, and yet I have seen the holy king of all creation. Woe is me. Woe is me. This should be, by the way, apart from Jesus, our cry before our Lord. Woe is me. Who am I? I am a sinner. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we are unworthy to stand before our king. And yet here in this moment, Isaiah sees the king. Holy, holy, holy. And then we see this this statement made here. So we see one of the seraphim flying over to him and, and with a burning coal that had been taken from the tongs of the altar. He touches his mouth and he says, listen to this, verse 7. Behold, this touched your lips. Really settle in on this, church. You ready? Your guilt is taken away. Your sin, your sin is atoned for. Here's what I want to pull out here. Here in this moment, what we have is woe is me, Isaiah. And do you notice that the king of all glory, he does not look down at Isaiah and say, nah, you're not that bad. He doesn't look down and say, no, you're fine, Isaiah. Come on in. You're not all that bad. I've seen dirtier mouths than yours. He doesn't look down and say, just forget about all that sin. Come on, let's snuggle. He doesn't. Notice Isaiah's sin was not swept under the rug, ignored, or made to be insignificant. That is not what happened here. Here in this moment, you have Isaiah, unclean sinner, touched by God. And we see his guilt taken away, and we see his sin atoned for. See, God doesn't ignore the sin, lessen the sin, push the sin under the rug. God doesn't do that. God removes the sin. God deals with the sin. In other words... Our psalm says, who will ascend the holy hill of the Lord, who will stand before him? The one who has clean hands, pure heart, doesn't lift up his soul to idols, doesn't lie. And so God takes Isaiah, and what does he do? He washes Isaiah's hands. He purifies Isaiah's mouth. He forgives and atones and removes Isaiah's sin, and he declares him just. He declares him just. Just, in other words, this is justification through the power of God that we see on display with Isaiah here in this throne room scene. 
In the same way, you and I, we stand before the presence of our Lord, and we should be saying, woe is me. Maybe you pick different words for that. But that should be our heart. I am lost. I, am, I have unclean lips, and I dwell with a lot of unclean lips as well. No offense. And who am I to see the king? Who am I to see the king of glory, the Lord of hosts? Hear me. You have every right to say that because he is the sovereign creator and you are not. He is holy and you are not. He is king and you are not. Woe is me for I am a sinner and yet God sent his son Jesus who knew no sin to take your sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. He took your sin, all of it, on his shoulders so that you can be forgiven, justified, sanctified, and one day glorified. This is the power of the gospel. Jesus conquered your sin. And like Isaiah 6, God now says, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Giving us the ability to come in confidence before the throne, saying holy, 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 joining in to that worship scene. Only those who are holy can come before him. The gospel says, you did not earn holiness. I'm going to call it an alien righteousness that descended upon you. This is a righteousness that came outside of you. It's the righteousness of Christ that was imputed to you so that now you can stand before the king of glory because of the sacrificial work of the son. This is the power of the gospel. This is the call of our psalm by the way, as we, as we think about this psalm and we think, well, what do we do with this? The power of this psalm, the call of this psalm, I believe is a call to simple worship, to humble ourselves before our God. Right. To know he is God and to know you are not. He is holy and you are not. Ultimately, it's to bend our knee to our creator and surrender and to come to him in Christ in a humble confidence, and in worship. That's the call of this psalm. Let's pray together. Lord, we come with that heart before you this morning. We come to you like Isaiah saying, woe is me. We come to you knowing that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we know that scripture tells us that. And we also know that if we're honest, that our lives have told us that over and over and over again. That we are sinners unworthy to stand before our holy God. And so, Lord, because of that truth, we start there. But because of that truth, we come to this psalm in complete um, just amazement and wonder that you have forgiven us, that you have called us, justified us, redeemed us, that you are sanctifying us, you are empowering us. And it's not lost on me that this scene, right after Isaiah's mouth is cleansed and after Isaiah's sin is atoned for, in the very next verses, Isaiah is then commissioned. And I'm reminded 
that we, like Isaiah, in, in so many ways, stand before our holy God saying, woe is me, but stand before our holy God knowing that our sins are forgiven so that now we can approach the throne of grace in confidence. Knowing that now, not because of our worth or anything we bring to the table, but because you and you alone are good, because you are gracious, because of your mercy, now we not only get to worship you, stand before you and join with holy, 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 but now we get to be also commissioned out for you. God, what a incredible truth that we get to stand on. How incredible is the gospel. So we will end with this reminder that there is not one square inch in all of, in all of creation, in all of my life and any of the lives of my brothers and sisters here. There is not one square inch, there is not one dark corner that you do not say mine. We have been bought with a price. And so we join with creation singing, holy, holy, holy. God, you are holy. In Jesus' name, amen.